You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. This past fall, the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security hosted their 32nd annual Review of the Field of National Security Law Conference. Among many featured panels was a discussion on whether following the law creates more problems than it solves during times of crisis. As a matter of ethics, this question stands at the core of what it means to be a national security lawyer. As we continue our series on Ukraine, it comes as no surprise that over the past year, Russia has opted to ignore the law in order to advance their agenda. We're airing this panel today to inspire good faith application of the law during times of crisis and conflict. We hope you gain something valuable and thanks for tuning in. My name is Jamie Baker. This is my 22nd year doing the ethics portion of the event. Notwithstanding the prior years of practice, I've made another rookie mistake. I thought it was a good idea to invite, as the two panelists, two serving government officials. And only belatedly realized, boy, you know what? We're going to have a pretty silent panel with the wrong question. So happily, my friend and colleague and mentor, Lori Hobart, stepped in to serve as moderator. I fired myself. That was a first. So here's how we're going to proceed today. Our moderator, as I indicated, is Lori Hobart. Professionally, she served as an attorney and an assistant general counsel in the intelligence community. She's worked at a law firm, and she's clerked. She teaches post-conflict reconstruction, national security law, and writing. Right now, her course is war and literature, a standard course at all law schools. (laughs) The other thing you should know professionally about Lori is that she believes, as all great national security practitioners do, that you need to teach to the century ahead, learn to the century ahead, not the one behind. That's why uh, she's working in the field of emerging technology and artificial intelligence, and I encourage you to read her work. She's here because she is someone who realizes that ethics depends on lifelong mentoring. Those around you, lifelong mentoring of those you work with, and I've seen this as she works with students. And so I said, this is the kind of mentor I would love to bring to this audience. She works with me almost every day, trying to mentor me on things like the use of the comma, uh, which I've yet to learn. My view is you put one in every 17 words. Our panelist to my left is Dana Dyson. Dana is the Deputy General Counsel of CIA for Operations. I've had to delete all the rest is blacked out here. Um, So, like many people in the room, Dana started her national security career in the military, both as a line officer and as a JAG. That was important to me, but I also wanted to someone who was at the cusp of national security and operations, because that's often where some of the hardest ethical questions appear. And I think being the Deputy General Counsel for Operations at CIA qualifies. As with Lori, that's not really why I picked Dana or invited Dana to serve on this panel. I've been spying on you. And sources and methods indicate 
and I've had this confirmed over the years, that Dana, like Lori, is one heck of a mentor. Uh, she is always available to those who need her counsel, and it's always Friday night or Sunday morning when counsel is needed on any ethical question. And I think that's one of the important lessons that we would wish to impart to any audience is the importance of creating an environment of ethical practice. And one way you do that is by always being available to those who seek ethical advice whenever that moment occurs. Now to get started, as a theme, to make it appear as if we are doing something different each year, we chose, does law matter, making the case for law during times of crisis. And I think we've all experienced this during times of real and perceived national security crisis and threat. Policymakers and decision makers sometimes consider law an impediment rather than an asset. I had the opportunity to make presentations in Ukraine. I asked to do it in person with the, I was told Zoom would be the preferred method, the first two weeks of February. And the presentations were on national security law, law of armed conflict, war crimes, presidential command and control, intelligence, intelligence oversight. And the question I was asked time and time again in different forms was, does law matter? Why should we follow the law when we face an existential threat and the opponent does not follow the law? They were surprised when I immediately had an eight-slide deck response to that question. I'm not very good at PowerPoint, but the reason I was ready with the question is because I had heard it before. Where? In the U.S. government, all the time. Does law matter and why should we follow it? It's an ethics question and a matter of ethics because it's ethics that determine whether lawyers respond to that question honestly and properly. And in our view, or at least my view, the lawyers who persuasively answer that question are the great national security lawyers because that's when ethics is most needed in times of crisis. So now I turn the mic back over to you and you get to ask the questions and I'll be quiet for 17 seconds. So I'll start with Dana and that question that Judge Baker has teed up, which is in times of national emergency and crisis, how do you make the case at, in your own work um, at the agency and maybe even in your teaching if you'd like to come on to that um, for law? Before I answer that question, I just want to thank Judge Baker, thank the ABA for inviting me to participate in this panel. I, too, have attended um, many of these conferences over the years. I always find them to be extraordinarily um, educationally helpful, um, uh, also helpful. Um, it's always like a reunion because I run into colleagues that I've worked with over the years, and you're able to reconnect, um, and also to make new colleagues both in and, and out of the government. So I thank you very much for, for asking me to um, participate today. To, to my uh, Duke Law uh, attorneys out there from the agency, as well as my friends and colleagues, I can assure you that that was not a covert influence campaign by Dyson with respect to those <laughs> comments. Um, with respect to how do you make the case for, for law in times of national security crisis, um, I think uh, I, there's four points I'd, I'd like to make about that and, uh, and put out there for, the, for folks to uh, consider and, and um, agree or, or disagree. Uh, when, I, when I first heard the question, my immediate thought was, you know, 
with respect to the oath that we take to support and defend the Constitution as government employees and all government employees, both, both attorneys and clients, if you will, um, that's our sworn duty to uphold the rule of law. Um, supporting and defending the Constitution means that you, you've sworn an oath to um, defend the rule of law uh, at all times when necessary. And I do think, I agree, that um, when there is a crisis situation, it is extraordinarily important, uh, more than any other uh, circumstances. Ignoring or purposefully not following the rule of law creates untenable risks, in my view, to the very foundations of our democracy. Um, and um, that runs counter you know, to the oath that we have all taken and counter to the democratic principles that we're serving in government to protect and defend. So I think that's a, that's a, a big piece of the commitment. Um, adherence to the rule of law also, in my experience, in dealing with clients, when clients present us um, at the agency with particular concepts of operations or ask you know, questions about the permissibility of, of activities, um, when we are able to tell them, yes, you know, um, uh, it is our legal analysis is determined that you may conduct this activity, uh, it, is, it is lawful, um, that gives them assurances that as long as they are conducting the activity within those parameters, um, if they are called upon later, if there is an inquiry of any sort or questions asked in hindsight, the lawyer will be there with them, um, and the lawyer will stand up and will say, it was my decision at that time um, that the activity was lawful. And you can imagine at the agency, we do this every day um, with smaller things, and then uh, obviously... Um, all the way up to working with the National Security Legal Advisor on, on, and the lawyers group at the NSC on the bigger things. But all clients I've found uh, through the years, whether you're, you're a junior or you're a senior leader, um, really look to us in order to get those assurances. And that's, that's part of the commitment um, of practice, which I think also protects um, the rule of law. In addition, consistency of practice over time that you develop, um, almost as muscle memory, is critical, um, and no more critical than in a time of crisis. Because when, it, when you're in a crisis, you don't want to go find out what the process is, right? You need to know what the process is in the dark. And that consistency of practice gives you a touchstone that will guide you in the middle of the swirl. So I think consistency of practice is really important in national security crisis as well to respect the rule of law. I also think, as attorneys, we all have a moral obligation to model democracy, to model, to let the clients know how important it is um, that the rule of law be respected. And that's modeling a commitment to our democratic institutions, not just for our fellow Americans, um, and, and particularly in the case of the agency, but also for our foreign partners. And for, for those seeing what's going on living in autocratic states. So modeling democracy 
as an attorney um, is, is critically important. And finally, I think it becomes, uh, if done and visible, even within the secret world that I largely deal in, but dealing with the foreign partners, dealing with fellow Americans, then it becomes a tool and a mechanism for hopefully increasing adherence to the rule of law internationally. Um, and that's a goal I have with respect to the attorneys in our, our practice um, to model that. And, and when we have the opportunity to meet attorneys all over the world, right, to always be mindful um, that we're a model for respect and compliance with the rule of law. I think in the case of the most recent um, armed conflict situation with respect to Ukraine, I'm really heartened by the, the reaction by democracies around the world um, regarding the current conflict and how important the respect for the rule of law is. I think that's an encouraging example um, of the value placed by those countries working with the U.S. government um, on the importance of the rule of law in protecting um, the human cost of armed, armed conflict to civilians. So that's, that's one particular example that I think we should all be very mindful of today. Good, that's a great example. Thank you. Um, Judge, I'm going to ask you the same question to make the case, and if you have any compelling examples, so if you would like to make the case for the value of the rule of law. So I, I would have uh, four points in addition. I like the comment, uh, Ben had the thing, plus one, I'll plus one that. That seemed like a simple way to say I concur. Um, probably simpler than writing a long opinion. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I would make uh, four points about how do you make the case uh, for law in times of crisis. One, you do it in advance. It's a terrible time to do it at three in the morning or whenever the crisis comes, which is never at a convenient moment. So you better have laid the groundwork in advance by talking to the client or the decision maker as to what your role is and, and what you bring to the table. Um, you tell the client, I think the client's the constitution, so I'm gonna avoid that word, but you tell the decision maker why the law is, not just what the law is. And in telling them why the law is, you always inform them why the law often, not always, but often, re results in a better national security outcome, a point that Dana just made. So they're listening and they're like, la, 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 and then you tell them why it leads to a better security outcome, and they're all ears. One of the things I think it's important for us to remember as lawyers is that national security law serves three purposes. Harvey mentioned one of the purposes at the very opening of this event today. He said the law provides the authority to act and the left and right boundaries of that action. The law also provides for essential process, both constitutional process or if you're in the intelligence community, directive type process. And then the law also includes values. At the morning panel, uh, it was said a number of times that national security law is all about values, and we can't lose that. Uh, that's what the lawyer brings to the table, both the expression of why something is a legal value, but also why it is a national security value at the same time. And I liked your point, Dana, that when <coughs> operators act with the knowledge of their lawyer, they invariably act with greater confidence and <coughs> lean into problems in a way they don't 
when they're not confident that the law is behind them. Thank you. And it's interesting to me how much you both uh, emphasize process as part of your answers. I think I'll go with Dana again first on this next one, um, which you've both touched on a little bit already, but maybe we could each add a little more. It's how do you... How do you each um, convince clients or decision makers or policy makers uh, to follow the law? And have you ever, what happens if they will not or they just do not? <laughs> well, that never happens. <laughs> um, do you want me to take um, I think in my in my experience both um, both as a Navy judge advocate and uh, as an operational lawyer at the at the CIA um, convincing the clients of anything um, including you know uh, policy uh, recommendations in, a, in addition to legal advice depends upon the development of client relationships uh, there's a there's a section of folks in this room that this is going to sound very familiar to um, but, you know, without having solid client relationships, without having a solid understanding of what the mission is, what the objective is, right, and without having a true trust between the client and the attorney, um, it, it's very difficult to um, be heard. But if you, if you develop those relationships, and I don't mean saying yes all the time. That's absolutely not what I'm talking about. Although the clients love it. They, they'll, they'll, their biggest compliment is, we love it, you always get to yes. And I'm like, I actually don't, but they somehow get amnesia um, when they want to talk to me again. So, um, But it is, it is building that trust and having that relationship with the client such that when you do say, listen, I'm sorry, I've looked at this, you know, 12 ways from Sunday, I've tried to see if there are legal alternatives, and I think, you know, it's a duty to do that if you can. You can't get there that way, but can you get, you know, this way um, is, is a potential legal avenue. I think it's important to explore that, but if you're there to help them facilitate mission every day, um, and, um, and at the agency we are, we're, we, we have the embedded model of the attorneys where in the operational arena you're with, you're with the clients in the practice areas and I, that's a whole other panel, but I, I think it's very beneficial to do, although your reporting chain remains the lawyer reporting chain, which I think is equally important. Um, then you've, you've got that relationship such that when you have to say, hey, you can't do this, or here are the legal parameters with, within which you must act. Um, they trust you, and they will listen to you. And it's also that assurance piece later, because you're, you're there together. So should you get a Monday morning quarterbacking situation, they, they know you're going to be there. Um, but what do you do when they, they don't, um, uh, and it doesn't work? I think, in my, in my honest experience, the intentional failure to follow legal guidance is rare. Um, what I do see more often is an unintentional failure to follow or to even spot a legal issue, right? Um, so that, you know, it's discovered after, after the fact. Um, you mean by the client? By the client, yes. 
um, they, don't, they don't realize that it is a legal issue. Now, that goes back to relationships, because what I ask my attorneys to do is train the client, right? Get, get that relationship with the client. Hold the brown bags. Make them sure they know what the rules are, right, that, that impact operations and what are the important things you need to know. So hopefully that doesn't happen very often, but it, it, it's not a perfect world, and, and sometimes the, the issues aren't brought to the lawyer's attention. Um, if there's an ability to engage prior to a legal violation, well, that's what I do. Um, I engage, or I ask my attorneys to engage. Um, and, and I have on occasion had, you know, a client um, at one level um, that I sensed was potentially ignoring me. Um, and when that happens, I just go up a level. And I keep going up until um, I get the, the nod that, you know, there is an understanding of the legal issues here. That's been a rare occurrence in my career. Um, but I can't say it hasn't, hasn't ever happened. I can say it has, I have never not, when I'm able and in a position to stop a legal violation before it occurred, I, to my best of my memory, I've, I have not failed at that. Um, if there's also, though, if, if you don't find out in time um, and you do have a legal violation, well, then, you know, you do the needful. That's part of that sworn duty obligation to, to, to support, defend the Constitution, protect the rule of law. So if you have a reporting obligation, you meet that obligation. Um, and whether that's an administrative matter or, frankly, rises to the level of a crimes referral over to the Department of Justice, then, you know, as an attorney working in the intelligence community, that's, that's part of the job. Um, and so, you know, that's how we fulfill that obligation as well. And you do that also bearing in mind that client relationship and educating the client as to, you know, this is part of the lawyer's obligation. That's why I, I, I often say, you know, when you're, when you're down in your particular operational area, you are of the team, but you're not always completely on the team. You can't be. you got to have that step back. That's why they don't write your performance evaluations, right? Um, but helping them understand your job and the importance of that and the importance of filing those reports um, is, is part of that obligation. Uh, good stuff, Dana. I think this is a good moment to introduce uh, a comment about the model rules so that you get credit. Uh, <laughs> the model rules start with Rule 1.1. No. Uh, <laughs> uh, Making the case is all about competence and diligence, right? That's rule 1.1 and 1.3. So this is not happy to glad stuff or uh, us thinking this is what we think the law is about. It's very much part of what it means to be a competent and diligent lawyer is to convince that client to follow the law. As I indicated before, I found one of the most persuasive ways to do that would be to explain why following the law led to a better security outcome. And by the way, if I couldn't do that, that was a hint to me that perhaps the law was not where it might be or should be, or at least it ought to be considered, right? Don't sit around and complain about it. Fix it. Um, so let me give you two examples of where applying the law leads to a better national security result. Uh, the first one has already been alluded to a number of ways, a number of times at all the panels today, and that's Ukraine, right? 
it's intuitive and an easy talking point to tell uh, the government of Ukraine that if you don't follow the law, you won't get NATO support, you won't get NATO weapons, you won't get NATO information. That's a winning talking point. Uh, but you might also explain, as George Washington was the first to note and do, that the difference between an armed mob and a professional military is obedience to law and good order and discipline. That's not a modern talking point for the UCMJ. That's George Washington, uh, who seemed to know something about it. Um, it's also important to note that the first modern law of a conflict code occurred during the Civil War, which is something I point out. It's easy to sit back in Washington and tell others to follow the law when they're in conflict, but it was helpful to point out that the first modern code was the Lieber Code. And of course, Lieber had three sons fighting in the Civil War at the time, one of whom was killed. Um, I like your point about going up a level, um, or two, or three, or four, or five. Um, the question I would pose to you in the audience as you look at your own bureaucracies and structure, do you have a process that is amenable to that? Have you encouraged people to do it? The judge advocate services actually have regulations that require you to do that, but most government bureaucracies do not. So have you created an environment that will encourage someone to go up a level if need be, at least to cross-check their information, uh, their position. And my final point on this question, uh, which is, um, I, you don't have to agree with this, but it's good to think it through and see whether you agree with it. Uh, Leon Firth, who is a, is a great American uh, patriot and believer in the law and in security, described the duty of the national security lawyer as to get to yes with honor, with the nation well taken care of, and the Constitution intact. And I always thought that was a wonderful description. The goal is not to get to yes, it is to get to yes with honor. And by the way, I don't mind a lawyer getting to know because it tells me two things. It tells me either that the lawyer is not a yes person, um, and it also tells me that the policy person is trying to solve the national security mission and that they've moved to the point where they've tried everything and now they're being told no to the next thing, right? If you never say no to, your, to the policymaker, it means they're not trying hard enough to solve the problem. Thank you. I'm going to pick at a couple of threads you guys raised. Um, one is with respect to Rule 1.1 on competence. The lawyers have legal knowledge, skill, thoroughness, and preparation reasonably necessary for the representation. And two, 1.3 diligence, that a lawyer shall act with reasonable diligence and promptness in representing a client. And I think we would all agree on this panel that the organization and the Constitution are the client. We're using the word client quite informally. Um, given there's a bit of a tension between those rules for all legal practice, you have to respond quickly, especially in the national security world where time is usually very short. Um, and you also want to do so thoroughly. How do you balance that? How, do you have any strategies for dealing with that? Um, Judge, I think I'll put that one on you first and give Dan a moment to think about it. Um, any strategies to deal with the... The, the, the speed of the yeah, practice oh, the speed and the, the competing need to yeah. be both diligent and prompt. Right, right. 
there's a lot of yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of smart lawyers in the world. Um, some may even be in this room. Uh, but uh, what I've found that there are fewer smart lawyers uh, who are comfortable and prepared to make decisions on national security timelines. Uh, that means uh, faster than you wish and with incomplete information. And the um, what are what are some of the the tricks? I and I'm not telling this audience anything they don't already know. Uh, the challenges in not knowing what to do. The challenges in doing it. Um, so the the point one is know everything. So that's easy. Uh, but know your mission, right? I was always surprised by people who showed up at boot camp and OCS who couldn't do a pull-up or could do two pull-ups. And you're like, what did you think you were going to do here when you got here? Pull-ups. You didn't know whether you'd eat. You didn't know what nickname your drill sergeant would give you. But you knew you were going to do pull-ups. So how is it you showed up not being able to do more than two pull-ups? So one of the answers to the question is, take everything off the table you can in advance of the crisis. If you can do 22 pull-ups, the minimum standard in the Marine Corps, um, then you can worry about things like, how do I operate this weapon system with no sleep? But if you're worrying about the pull-up part while you're worrying about the weapon system, it's not going to go so well. So, as lawyers, we can take everything off the table that we can in advance by knowing our portfolios, by knowing our chain of command, by knowing the right processes. Do not try to learn them in the moment of crisis. You already know them cold. And then you can spend all your time on the pressure of dealing with the problem on the national security timeline with incomplete facts. Um, I had another excellent point here, which I seem to have lost while sitting here. Um, the, uh, oh, um, absolutely, you, make, you meet all operational deadlines. And this is something I know Dana knows about in her world. Uh, the surest way to get, there's two sure ways to get thrown out of the room, the metaphorical room and the actual room. Uh, one, lawyers can never have the most obnoxious personality in the room. That's the right of the client, the decision maker. <laughs> Right? Uh, and if you're the one with the most obnoxious personality, guess who gets tossed out of the room? The law. Uh, the, um, the, the second point is um, ensure that the operational timeline is a real one. Right? It's a classic. How many of you have had the thing where they say, I need the answer in the next five minutes? And it's a fake. They're just trying to pressure you into saying yes. Now, I tell the five-minute story where the answer had to be given in the next five minutes. But that's after I confirmed that a real-world event of ma a matter of life and death would happen in the next five minutes. But usually the five minutes is someone trying to drive you to yes or no. Um, so confirm the real-world deadline and then meet it. I think that's, that's good for, for me. Yeah, I, I completely agree with um, validating uh, that their emergency is also your emergency, um, uh, and sometimes it is. I mean, when there's a when there's a near term uh, national security threat, 
um, requiring um, a near-term response, um, then we are required to render legal advice and counsel at, at what I call the speed of mission. Um, and when you're doing that, um, reliance on that built-in muscle memory for the process is really key. Um, um, as is, you know, all of the foundational legal knowledge and work that you've done, you know, during the course of your career, however long or short it may be, if you're a, if, if you're an attorney new to the national security practice. Um, but I would say the other critical thing to remember when you're faced with that kind of question at, at whatever level it may be is, you know what? National security law is a team sport. Okay? You don't, you don't have to sit down there, you know, and, and decide all by yourself. You've got colleagues. Um, now, you know, after 32 years, I, I've got colleagues that I call upon, you know, um, all the time at, at State L, um, Department of Justice, NSA, um, DOD, OGC, um, you know, where it, even if it's a unique agency issue, you've got people who can help you think about it um, the right way, considering different factors, factors that they're going to think about that you may, you may not. Um, and that's, that's why we have a National Security Council Lawyers Group, right, to get, you know, the benefit of literally hundreds of years of advice if you put us all in the room together, um, you know, when we're looking at the most serious and most critical national security threats. So I think, you know, when you're pressed by the moment to have to render that legal advice, um, there's always time to take a beat, right, and, and do a check with, with those that are also, you know, moving forward on that mission with you, whether it's your supervisors up the chain because it's an internal issue, or for me these days, you know, whether, whether it's reaching out to, to NSC Legal and my, my colleagues across the IC. So following up on that team sport <laughs> analogy, the, just the idea of working with other attorneys who may or may not always agree, and how do you foster a culture um, within an agency or within judicial chambers where there is room for, I would ask that both maybe from your perspective as supervising attorneys or a judge working with clerks, or if you can remember back to when you were junior attorneys, how do you foster an environment where lawyers feel that they can bring ethical issues to each other um, and have disagreements and then at the same time meet the, the need to come to a resolution? Well... I, th I think it starts with um, what I said in answer to another question, relationships um, and approachability, right? And, and I would offer a little humility, right? Because the, the more senior you get, uh, I don't know about you, but I've, I've seen some, some lack of humility from time to time. And I think... If, if you can remember, no matter how senior you are, that you can also be completely wrong about things um, and, and be open to learning from those of you who've been practicing, those attorneys um, you're supervising who may have been practicing a lot less time than you, um, but, but uh, have a lot more 
um, information and knowledge, you know, about certain areas of the law than, than, than you do, and I'm thinking technology for me um, in particular. But you have to have a, a, an inclusive culture, an inclusive environment that your attorneys who are working for you feel that you're approachable. They can come to you if they have an ethical issue um, or a tough legal question. Um, and that, you know, you are open, right, to hearing from them. When, I, when we have difficult legal issues at the office, you know, my general approach is to call a meeting um, of all of the attorneys involved, regardless of what, you know, rank level they're at, so that we can sit down and kind of throw it all out in the room, right? And, and you can't sit there as the supervisor and, and judge all that as it's happening, um, because then you're going you're gonna to really tamper any kind of discussion and debate, right? You have to be respectful of, of views, even if you know some of it is not going to work as a practical matter, right? But that's part of the mentoring and the teaching. You, you, you let them get it all out on the table, and then let's hold some of that up and examine it, walk it back, right? See what works, see what doesn't. Um, but I often find that in the course of trying to teach them, they're teaching me quite a lot, too. Um, and you, you really have to be open for that. But if, but if you can do that and you can make that kind of magic happen, um, then I think that will, that will permeate through your, your system where your managers and your leaders will start to model that um, because, because it also actually works, right? And so it's a successful process. And so once they see that, um, and, and you can see that drive uh, to success, um, then it'll start to be repeated. Uh, my, my response is it's a lot easier, although not always successfully done, uh, to build that um, culture uh, at a place like an appellate court because you're not dealing with uh, time urgency. And I think the task is much harder for the people in this room um, and certainly for someone who has responsibility for operations to do it. And it is to Dana's credit that she focuses on this issue in an operational role. Um, if you're a judge and you don't focus on this issue, then shame on you because you've got the time to do so. Um, one way I would try to focus on it is um, by making sure everybody realized that they, we're all working on the same mission. Uh, nobody was working for the judge. They were working for the Constitution. Uh, so the team was built to serve the Constitution, not to serve the judge. Um, and I also reminded everybody on my team uh, what they brought to the table, which was self-evident after they saw my use of commas. But it was also self-evident after we had our first discussion about how to hide things in the black space on a computer. Um, I would look on the computer and try and find the black space. I thought it was behind the gerbils on the wheel. And it was always the clerks who actually knew a whole lot more about social media and about computer technology than I did, which is hard to imagine given my expertise. Um, but they needed to be reminded that they actually... Uh, actually bring this to the table. And by the way, I just saw a former clerk say that's true. 
I'm assuming that's a reference to my expertise and not the part about me not how, knowing how computers work. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, yes, um, the, the, uh, so at a court, you have more time to figure this stuff out. Um, I would play a game where uh, I, I originally asked people to, crit you know, my, my team to critique my opinions. And of course, the result was, oh, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. And I was like, well, it's actually not. But so then I did two things. I started putting in fake, fake cases uh, to see if they got caught. And then the problem with that was, if they didn't catch them, I might forget they I did that. <laughs> uh, so, that so that turned out not to be such a great idea. Um, <laughs> so the way I solved the problem was I, I said, okay, you have to tell me what's the best thing in this opinion. So that was great, no problem there. But by definition, there's got to be something in here that is the least best thing, right? So you got fair enough, right? There's got to be something that is even less brilliant than everything else. Well, that opened the floodgates. So then there was like, well, this is good, but here are the 43 things that are less good. Um, and then it was like, oh, well, let's change the rule. We'll go back to the brilliance part. Um, but it worked. It worked. Once they, you set up a system where they could praise with one hand and undermine with the other, um, it was a good system. So onto the national security side, at a place like the NSC, it's much harder, right? You're not like, oh, let's go do the team outing. Um, or, you know, let's all have lunch once a week. That's not going to happen. Um, so I think, uh, I think the key there, uh, in my view, and I think this is what I've always heard about the way you practice, Dana, is to walk the walk and exercise the moral authority. So there's lots of people who say, family first. And then they give you the assignment on your kid's birthday at Friday night at midnight, right? Family first until I want to go home and you stay. Um, and so the surest way, it's, it's good old-fashioned leadership, uh, which doesn't occur all the time, which is leadership by example and leadership with moral authority. And just because you're a lawyer, you can look at this thing all you want, and you're not going to see leadership by example and moral authority but those are the two most important rules to creating an environment of the sort that Dana has talked about. I know Dana had something that she had one question that she did want to address, and I'd like to give her Yeah, I, I just, I, you know, I very much appreciated um, being invited to participate in the panel because I think I'm often asked about how how do you deal with working in a in a closed world in a in a, in a closed environment. And, and still trying to get the trust and confidence of the public, right, that what your particular, my particular agency, but the, uh, pick any IC agency, um, is operating within the rule of law. And, um, and I think that national security requires a balance between transparency and secrecy. Because without some degree of secrecy, um, there can't be national security, fundamentally. Um, but without some degree of transparency, we can't get the support of the American public that we all serve. Um, and we can't ensure that we're abiding by the democratic principles upon which the country's founded. So I think that we have to bear in mind as national security lawyers the importance of the processes 
to get as much transparency as possible while maintaining the necessary secrecy to accomplish national security goals. And that's why, you know, we appreciate and, and should appreciate the processes that are in place for evaluating information over time to determine, does it still have to remain secret? That needs to have a regularized review. At what point can, can we declassify, um, declassify things? We also have to bear in mind and, and make sure that the American people, to the president's comments about civics, are educated about, even though some national security lawyers operate in a very secret world, there is oversight of that world. The public's representatives, the Congress, the congressional representatives on our intelligence committees, right? We have a duty, a statutory duty, but also a moral duty and an obligation because they're the public's representatives, right? To, to make sure that they're aware, they're fully and currently informed. That's a statutory obligation. Um, but that's also a, a moral imperative in order to make sure that our government functions in a way that is as transparent as possible. Um, and I think, I think it's critical also um, that when we get an opportunity within the IC to speak to, to, to bodies um, and to the public at large um, about things, to give them more information about, yeah, the CIA has lawyers, right? Like, you know, some people are actually surprised at that. Um, you know, and, and how important and fundamental the rule of law is to the practice of the intelligence legal community, intelligence community legal folks, then I think that message needs to get out there more widely than it does. Um, and I hope that, that those of you here who aren't in the IC, right, can help get that message out with respect to how much the, the IC and the IC legal community respect and, and uphold the rule of law. So thank you. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.